every year on a certain day, I can't remember what it was, the prior of the monastery came and preached at the Medici Palace, and Savonarola went and preached his usual um, fiery sermons against the uh, the corruption and the elites right in the palace of Lorenzo de' Medici. Oh my god. The yeah. stones on this guy. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people, as always. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, the aptly named George. Say hi, George. Good evening. Good evening, indeed. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurs best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do. But we're gonna try anyway. So, George, who do we have this time on the pod? <laughs> well, Aaron, we... Is there a joke or something I'm missing? <laughs> I'm just... I hate calling it the pod. It just made me laugh. Live in the pod, eat the bugs. I will. I never, never. Anyway, (laughs) anyway. So yeah, we've got someone that I've actually wanted to cover for a long time because he's always been a favorite historical figure of mine. But I'm a lazy dumbass and it's taken me a long time to actually get to work on it. So here it is. That's right. Today we are going to talk about my childhood idol, Girolamo Savonarola. I must say, this guy has been on the list ever since you joined the show, and I'm very excited to figure out why, because I remember looking into it and being like, who? I don't I don't see it, but, you know, we always tease out something interesting from from these kinds of figures, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. We, we dig down into the, the meaty meat of the matter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we did dig up... Uh, we've dug up some very random stuff, but... I think that's that's one of the things that makes the show unique. And I have to say, we haven't done an Italian in ages, but I'm also very concerned about anyone who was your childhood idol, I have to say. Well, you knew we'd make it back to doing Catholics eventually. And, bonus, <laughs> this is one Catholic that you damn dirty Protestants keep trying to steal from me, so I have to stake my claim on the pod before you do. I'm afraid... We have to stop calling it the pod. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about, because, um, as a collective group, I don't think Protestants do anything together, so I've gotta say, I don't know if you can blame all of them for trying to steal this man from you, right? I mean, the whole point of Protestantism is to just argue with each other, right? I mean, this is a podcast. Aren't we supposed to just make unsubstantiated generalizations about things and gloss over nuance? Uh, uh... Why can't we have a dialogue? Should we? Can't we just talk about these things, George? I mean, people need to be civil. What happened to civility? Anyway, as I said, um, <laughs> Savonarola is a favorite of mine, so try to have some intelligent commentary if it's not too hard. I make no promises about the intelligence of any of any comments I make, and I expect none. <laughs> All right, let's head down to the history lab and get rolling on this prod- I mean, Catholic. All right, let's do it. In a world of corruption, decadence, depravity, and pasta, one man just couldn't take it anymore. Did Savonarola take things a little too far? 
or was he the hero that the Renaissance needed? Hear his story and decide for yourself. So, George, it's been a rough year. 2020 has been weird, and we don't generally like to comment on contemporary events because we are historically-minded people, but since it appears that history, despite our best warnings on the pod for the podcast for the last <laughs> few years, if for those of you who don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it, and I'm beginning to think you deserve it. So, George, <laughs> how do you plan on surviving the coming societal apocalypse? Well, since I, well, basically barely participate in society as it is, I really don't expect too much to change, honestly. But if mm. things really do go south, I guess I'll try to get in touch with my Indo-European roots and become a sort of nomadic step warrior in a chariot. Or nice. maybe just a, a redneck in a pickup truck. But I mean, same energy. Same energy. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? How will you survive the coming societal apocalypse? I don't know. And it's uh it's a tough it's it's a tough ask because I've had all year to think about it just watching everything go to hell. Um it's been uh it's been an enjoyable ride watching myself go from like worried about things falling apart, warning about things falling apart, you know, tolerating the the uh comments of my contemporaries. Oh, you're just crazy. Yeah, I've heard it all and I'm sort of like at this point I'm like, well, Load up, boys. I can't wait to become a warlord, or at least follow one, whichever comes first. I fully expect to take over part of the Midwest uh, with nary a shot fired because people will be too busy um, looking for that last uh, Burger King burrito as they scavenge the wastes. And meanwhile, I will have already found the gateway into the hollow earth and escaped. <laughs> yes. To be with the bat people who live beneath the surface. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the bat people, but it's I, not really important. I haven't heard of the bat people, but I think we should probably save that for another episode. Yeah, we'll talk about the bat people someday. <laughs> people are like, uh, they think it's a joke. There are actually bat people under the surface, and I will not apologize. <laughs> so, <laughs> with that hilarious joke out of the way, I would like to take this opportunity to thank a new patron we just picked up, even in our absence. Uh, the username Snake Squeezins <laughs> has donated $5, and we are very appreciative. As always, financial support of the show in any way really does go a long way in keeping us going, no matter how small. We did lose a little support. That's okay, too, because, hey, we understand that uh, times are tough, and the noose is tightening around all of our necks right now. And, uh, you know, you've got to save that $2 you were giving anyway to, to um, you know buy that 100% uh, markup steak if you're in Canada. Anyway, so yeah, we years ago we uh, had entertained the idea of putting the show on YouTube and monetizing it, um, but now that's out the window with all the new rules, and I'm not sure we could even make 10 cents with half the jokes we make. I don't think we can even talk about bad people without getting banned. Um, we'd probably get banned for talking about history anyway. Anything that's not um, boring, lame, and useless is getting banned, so... Take heart, but the good news is... We also have an interesting comment uh, on one of our episodes, our recent episodes. The Yevgeny Maximov pulled in something rather fascinating that I'd like to read for everybody and then gauge George for a reaction. An anonymous user commented on SoundCloud of our Yevgeny Maximov show, <clears throat> quote, I enjoyed listening to this podcast. From what I read about Maximov over the years, he really was a good man. Alexander was my great-grandfather. His decision to challenge Maximov was foolish, yes. 
But of course, it was all about honor. Your take. Well, my my mind has been so thoroughly putrefied by memes that all I can think of, first of all, is just a meme with it with one of the muscular dogs saying, "Watch out, King! There's a noble re- watching your podcast," but with the O censored out. And that's 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 my that's my first reaction. But that aside, that aside, I, I, it's really really cool. Um, I wonder. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have anything substantive to say other than that's really cool, and it'd be really weird if I heard, you know, two random jerk-offs making a podcast about my <laughs> great-grandfather. I would find that highly disturbing. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry if it was weird for you, um, but I'm glad to have you as a listener. Well, would you remind us who this Alexander is? He was the prince who Maximov accidentally killed in the duel because right. uh, he had... Maximov had insulted the prince's mistress and the prince challenged him to a duel and Maximov planned to avoid hitting him because he knew he was a much much better shot Maximov that is and so he decided he was going to aim low and hit the guy in the leg so that then the duel would be officially concluded and there wouldn't be any grounds to have a new one but the guy would survive but the seconds also wanting to avoid anyone dying overloaded the pistols so they shot high and so those two things canceled each other out and he hit the guy in the chest and prince alexander was no more hmm and yes the great grandson or granddaughter of that dead man has uh, come out of the 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 fabric of the internet to touch the face of god one might say <laughs> No, it's always weird when we run into the, when we run into this kind of thing because it's happened. It's happened before. We've had people who've been related to people on the show in some way, and and um, sometimes they'll reach out with DMs and things like that. And it's it's always very interesting to have it made that much more real. Um, so for the anonymous user who posted that comment, one, we hope you're real, and two, if you are, thank you, thank you for for letting us know. That's very interesting. Um, it's always fun to hear that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, um. Did I put in a section for us to talk about where you've been, by the way? Because there was a bit that I wanted to... I don't. Think where have you been? T- I tell us have... about your travels. So I have driven um, across the country, in fact, to Texas um, to visit uh, my sister and some other family. And so I drove there, which is a very long drive, and drove back and just sort of... Since I also, like Aaron, went to college in Texas, I've various friends scattered around the state and i just kind of lived as a lived as a hobo on the open plains and just migrated from friend's house to friend's house uh you know reconnecting with people and uh, eating tacos and it was it was pretty good it was weird it was weird to go back after all these years to the you know the site of my greatest triumphs and defeats um it was kind of like a dark souls game honestly is the sort of vibe i got going back but it was fun nonetheless but that is why i've been gone i've been on the road for several weeks did you make any interesting stops that you'd like to tell us about? Um, I got Torchy's Tacos, and I got Whataburger, oh. and, oh. Uh, you know, all the, the Texas stuff. Is there something you're hinting at, Aaron? Yes, there's something I'm hinting at. Some some very specific place you may have stopped while uh, <laughs> while on the road. Well, I did stop at the, uh, the memorial on the site of the former Branch Davidian Complex outside Waco, Texas, um, to pay my respects to the um, 70, I don't remember the number, however many people it was who were killed by the government there, uh, many of them women and children. So I stopped at the memorial for a while and saw that uh, 
interesting little thing is that people leave a uh, a bullet on the memorial as sort of a uh, an offering. And I thought that was very, very interesting and very indicative of the fact that this country is a fucking powder keg. Uh, the fact that we have this <laughs> memorial to people killed by the government. There were a lot of bullets. Let me tell you what. There were there were a lot of bullets. And, uh, oh. you know, I, I added mine because, you know, when in when in Waco, it was the Waco and Stu. Um, yeah, you did send me a picture. There were a lot of bullets on that memorial. And may I ask what caliber you left for the Branch Davidians? I left a two twenty three because I'm lame nice. and I don't go in for the meme calibers. <laughs> well, two twenty three, you know, that's going to be in high high demand pretty soon, I would say. But if, uh, well, that's not a prediction. Could it? I mean, <laughs> I'm not making a prediction, and I'm not making any substantive claim. It is a powder keg out there, and it's going to get real weird in the coming days but that's okay because we have a dumb podcast to do (laughs) so uh thank you for sharing where you've been um as always i just remind everybody that uh i I now work night shift and it's uh it's uh it's a it can be a drag i really love it but it's uh it messes up our schedule so there's that nonetheless it's been really fun to see uh, all the continued support from everybody listening especially from our patrons um and i've been trying to think of ways to uh, reward the people who have stuck with us the longest. It's really, really difficult to like put out something, you know, like a whole extra episode because the amount of research that goes into these is is. I mean, it it was it seemed like a full time job when I wasn't working, but now that I am working, it's like holy shit, how do I do all of this? Um, but anyway, so yes, to our to our patrons, um, again, thank you very much. You don't get enough love or attention, and uh, if you can think of anything that you would maybe like to see. Uh, at this point, you've earned it. So I, I will say, uh, don't message us on Twitter because I don't even check that anymore. I mean, I just, I've just been avoiding it because it's been, ugh, it's just disgusting. I can't imagine a worse place on the internet than Twitter. Um, I did start other social accounts and I haven't paid any attention to them at all. Um, but I would say if you really want to reach out, I will definitely get an email from you if you message us on Patreon. So to our patrons, if there's something you'd like to see, the DMs are open on Patreon, and we'll be we'll do our best to serve you uh, as we can. But uh, again, it's it's this is one of those if you like us and you support the show, it's we the only way we can say thank you is by keeping going. Yeah, and I was uh, just going to add that um, I will soon once again have access to the Facebook account. I lost the login information because I had it stored on an external drive, which got packed up while I was moving. But I have found the drive and recovered the login information. So I will soon be able to once again uh, maintain the Facebook page. So seriously, if you want us to do a episode on someone, just send a message and like we'll literally we'll literally do and do it. Like you've got someone, you know, send it to us. Um, yep. And the reason I the reason I lost the login information is because I have a tendency to randomize login stuff. What I do is I usually grab the a random book off my shelf and use it's um library of congress number and then randomize those numbers and then use that as a password so it's really really hard to guess if i've lost where if i don't have access to the drive where i store all the passwords wow look at you like mr worldwide here you might <laughs> using books for passwords i'm i'm very very impressed um but yeah yep i think that's uh i think that's uh, that's good we needed to give you guys an update on what we're doing uh, and how we are and everything, because, hey, you know, I know, look, this year, I'll tell you what, working the job I work and doing the stuff I do, I run out of good content to listen to. 
it happens a lot. So losing a weekly show, I, I know, is kind of a drag. Um, again, I, I'm starting to think that the, the future of um, employment is going to be mostly on the internet anyway. So uh, in this time where we're trying to figure out just where the hell everything's going to go, uh, <laughs> your continued support and, and the continued plays, the listens, the shares, the likes, the comments especially... Um, again, just, it, it's, it's great to hear. So as always, remember to like, rate, subscribe, <laughs> uh, because if you're not going to subscribe to us, you might subscribe to some other dumbass history podcast where they just change everything because they want to. So there you go. <clears throat> and with that, I would like to ask the computer to please bring up, is it Hirolamo? Girolamo. Girolamo Savonarola. All right, there we go. So, um, take it away, George. Well, since we're uh, doing another Catholic today, we had better stick with tradition. So why don't you go ahead and describe... <laughs> you like that, don't you? I thought That you was would. very good, very why good. Why don't you go ahead and describe Girolamo Savonarola's physical appearance from this painting I have provided you? Well, I- I'll begin by saying this. If there was a person who looked like... Who could be turned into a crow in an old animated Disney movie? That's this man. <laughs> like he he would be portrayed as a crow in if he were in a, like the Robin Hood Disney movie from way back in the day when I was still watching Disney movies and they were still good. Doesn't matter anyway. So he's got kind of like a that very very uh, I don't know if you call it Italian looking nose. It's like a it's like a hook aquiline uh, aquiline. <laughs> yes, 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 literally that's meaning eagle like. He does look like an eagle. There you go. Or a crow. Or a so, bird. He looks yeah, like I was going to say, basically what you're saying is he looks like a bird. He looks like a bird. So he's he's bald, it looks like. At least his cowl um, only covers up part of his face. He's like in a robe-looking thing. I'm sure there's a traditional name for that. Traditional garb. Um, he's looking at you like he knows exactly what you're doing right now, which is probably listening to We Talk About Dead People, and he's just sort of like, yeah, I know what you're up to. <laughs> There's just a look in his eyes like, you're probably getting good information, but do you really have to get it from them? <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he uh, dark eyes, very thin eyebrows. Um, but the most interesting thing about this particular picture is the fact that he's holding a giant feather. Um, and it might be a quill of some kind, I really don't know, but it's as, it's about half as tall as he <laughs> is. And it actually runs out of the picture. And there appears to be some kind of a banner on it, in, and it's got some writing on it. I don't know what that says. Did you take a look at that? No, it, that's definitely a palm, by the way, you know, from a palm tree. Oh, is it? So I'm sure, I'm, I, did, I did not look into the details of the painting or the iconography, but no, I'm sure it's a, it's a religious symbolism. Palms appear in tons of, you know, medieval and Renaissance paintings. And wow. I, I can see the image quality isn't great. I can definitely see the word palm is one of the Latin words on the <laughs> thing, so. That's, yeah, I see that now, but I can't read the others. And he appears to have some kind of a giant compendium or book or something that he's holding it over, so I don't know what that is either, but. Yeah, I like this picture. This this picture makes me feel uncomfortable and uh, interested at the same time. Sort of like a really good, like, Tinder profile. That was a joke. I don't use that that app. That's, I don't think he did. I would either. never touch that app. <laughs> uh, all right. So um, with that, I think it's time to begin the storytelling aspect of the show. Don't you think? All right. Let's do it. So Roger, Dodger. Here we go. My boy, Girolamo Savonarola. 
And I can always remember how to spell it because I actually have a big plastic sign with his name on it laying around. Why? Because when I when I was like 10, I went to this big like massive sort of state fair exhibition type thing and some like manufacturing technology company or whatever had um this machine that did a uh, plastic instant plastic molding where and you could just get in line and have make a sign they had a, a big bin of letters and you just had to put the letters on this sheet and then they would put the letters on this metal plate and then put this plastic sheet on it and then close it and press a button and some sort of magic would happen and the plastic would be heated up and suctioned down around the letters and then instantly harden again. And so you could have this. So I have this like three foot plastic sign that just has Girolamo Savonarola on it in big letters. All the other kids were like making like their uh, their own names or like the names of their parents with a little like heart between them or stuff. But no, not me. Not me. I was making my boy Girolamo Savonarola. So I still have this big plastic sign. I haven't really figured out what to do with it, but um, it's been here for decades. I feel like that might have to be our episode cover. If I can find it, it's I know it's here. If I can find it, I will send you a picture and you could use it. <laughs> okay, as long as it doesn't suck. Otherwise, I'm using the crow picture. <laughs> Why not both? All right, so tell me, um what first of all, I'm sure there's a little bit of uh, a little bit of <clears throat> personal bias going into this, and I'm sure you've accounted for that in your report, right? Obviously, I'm the most unbiased person you know, bitch. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know, but okay, I'm gonna pretend that you are, so we so we don't get banned. Um, this is an unbiased show, obviously. So uh, I can't wait to hear this story. So please take it away. Okay. So Savonarola was born in the city of Ferrara, Italy, on 21st of September, 1452. And in case you didn't know, because honestly I didn't, had to look it up. Ferrara is a city in northern Italy, not too far from Florence. Um, I knew it was a city in Italy, I just didn't know where. Um, and like Florence, it was a very big part of the old Ita Italian Renaissance. Um, so, you know, lots of art and, you know, weird crap like that. And it was a pretty prosperous little town, but it wasn't, it wasn't a big player. It was like a, you know, it was a moderate city. It was not a, not a huge player in mm. terms of so, the politics. Okay. Now, hold on real quick. So we, when most people learn about the Renaissance, they don't hear, oh, that's weird. So what do you mean by there was weird stuff going on with the Italian Renaissance? Just generally. It was just, it was a, it was a time of great social change and times of great social change always spawned weird stuff. So like mm -hmm. for all the people you had who were like doing like legitimate sort of research and discovery and stuff and science, you had an equal number of people doing batshit crazy things and like, you know, weird astrology and alchemy and all sorts of strange mysticism and it was just a it was a time of great experimentation and so there's just a, mm. a lot of weird stuff and the thing is a lot of times it was the same people doing weird stuff doing stuff which from our later perspective is weird and doing also what we now view as like very legitimate scientific research yeah the uh that's one thing i noticed reading about the enlightenment recently was like holy crap there's just a lot of strange stuff going on here like you know you think of the enlightenment as like oh we've we've kicked off the shackles of, and we're only listening to reason now and it's like all these cults and shit just keeps popping up everywhere uh it's fascinating yeah to i mean about like, think about think, like think about isaac newton who you know in addition to the whole gravity stuff was also into alchemy it's like it's right. sort of they there was not yet a you know, a 
they couldn't distinguish at that point between the what we now see as legitimate science and inquiry and really really crazy stuff don't blame them for it i'm just saying it was there was a lot of weird stuff going on at the time right and it's it's interesting to see these these uh and i don't mean to harp on it but it, it is an interest we're going through a lot of social change right now um which i don't really want to talk about because i honestly don't care all that much but um basically what happens in these periods is that nothing is off the table uh, and it ends up that people try out a lot of really crazy ideas, and sometimes it gets a lot of people killed. I mean, one period I've been talking about for years now that I want to cover is uh, the whole uh, French Revolution era. It's gonna That's going to be like a series. It, it'll have to be episodes and episodes and episodes to actually even cover the extent of such a thing. Um, but what you sort of do get with... Uh, with those periods is sort of that alchemical process of like order out of chaos um which is so interesting to see be that people are also like literally studying alchemy while that kind of thing is happening but that's uh that's a whole other topic so we won't get into that but i i hate to digress so if you'll <laughs> you may carry on don't give me that bullshit you love to digress i do love to digress it's okay. it's in the name okay well now that aaron's gotten that out of his system so Little Girolamo was the third of Niccolo and Elena Savonarola's seven children, and his family were of moderate importance, uh, not the people on top by any means, but they were a relatively, relatively well-to-do minor noble family with a long history of political and military achievement, more, more in the past than in the present. Like, they had, a, they had a lot of ancestors who were a lot more important than they were, but, you know, they were, they were the didn't really have honestly didn't have a middle class at this point they were the low end of the upper class gotcha yep. and um by this time however the time of savonarola's birth the family wasn't really doing the the military and the politics stuff they had degenerated into commercial activity you know banking mm. and merchantry and stuff like that oh that's too bad yeah it is you know i guess i mean they, were they doing well at least <laughs> off and on they were doing okay not great Okay, not, okay. not great, not terrible. Um, okay. So, there's not a lot of info on the young Savonarola, which we've come to expect with historical figures, because nobody's really, you know, writing the comprehensive history of, you know, people who aren't yet important, and by the time they are important, where are you going to go to find out what they were doing when they were four? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, we do know that at age five, he began his education, being taught by none other than his grandfather, Michele Savonarola, who was famous in his own right at the time, he was a doctor and a scholar whose services were sought by many of the most powerful characters in Italy at that time. So he was like a, he was known and important, but I mean, he was important for being like a really good doctor that nobles would hire. So even then, like, we're not talking about a, you know, a superstar celebrity, just like, a, you know, a, a pretty, a pretty, pretty well-known guy. Sure, sure, sure. He was also an extremely devout Catholic and very ascetic in his daily life. He hated luxury and the pomp and decadence which characterized elite circles and noble courts, preferring to devote himself to reading scripture and theology when he wasn't practicing medicine. Um, so yeah, not a, not not into the uh, the sort of exuberant wealth and uh, pleasure and all that that the elites are often up to. Very much a uh, a sort of monk-like individual. It's very rare, very rare to see. Hmm. So the younger Savonarola was recognized early on as having tremendous intellectual potential, 
And he equaled it in effort and diligence. Um, when he started the schooling, he really went, went all in on it. In fact, his family thought he was overdoing it and was going to burn himself out with his studies, so they actually made him take up some other more relaxing activities. So he learned to draw and was apparently pretty good at it, and he also learned oh. several musical instruments, among which his favorite to play was the lute. Okay, hold up. I gotta mark this. I'm gonna put in some loot. <laughs> we've gotta get... We've gotta set the scene here. Ah, yes. Get the, the mood music with the loot. That's, that's how you do yeah. it. Marking for loot. <laughs> <laughs> in, uh, in 1468, when Savonarola was 16, his grandfather died at the age of 83, which is quite impressive, so he was probably a pretty good doctor. Uh, <laughs> knew how yeah, to live that care long. of himself there. Yep. Yeah. He was, you know, he was he was out at 5 a.m. doing his walk, getting the paper like old men do in suburbia. Yep, wasn't drinking the fluoridated water, had a gravity filter. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michele had left uh, little Girolamo with a very solid education, a rigorous moral character, and a dedication to upholding justice no matter the cost. Uh, he left many writings behind, including various medical treatises, which are obviously not our concern here, um... Maybe sometime we'll do an episode where I just read 15th century medical treatises. I'm sure that would be a big <laughs> hit. Um, but he also left Girolamo with a lot of his short uh, religious maxims, notably this one. What God has ordained, the Pope and their vicars cannot order otherwise. This I say for the many who take as their excuse certain wider dispensations which please them, whereas the stricter ones do not. So you, it's, it's all or nothing. You can't just just take the parts of religious life that you like. Mm, you, you've I'm got starting to, to detect some Catholicism here. You've got, you've got to go all in. No, no cafeteria Christianity, as they call it. Or uh, what do they call it? Fast food Jesus. Good stuff. <laughs> I've, I've literally <laughs> never heard that, but that sounds literally like the exact same expression as cafeteria it, Christianity. I've never heard cafeteria Christianity, so that shows that we come from different circles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's you know it's like in a cafeteria, you go along and you just pick out the things you want from the the display, and mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, anyway, that's that's not important. That's a whole so, other thing. <laughs> at this point, Girolamo was still continuing his formal education in the traditional European course of the liberal arts. We talked a lot about medieval education in the Roger Bacon episode, so we don't want to get into that here. But the liberal arts consisted of astronomy, mathematics, geometry, music, rhetoric, grammar, and logic, and formed the foundational general education of the medieval scholar before he then went into one of the advanced fields of theology, medicine, and law. Is it is it is it bad that I felt really sad when you explained that the liberal arts were astronomy, mathematics, geometry, music, rhetoric, grammar, and logic? <laughs> I don't know, is it? I just, I didn't get to take astronomy in college, that's all. I, I took astronomy, it was great. <laughs> By which I mean it was like a 5,000 person lecture class that I could do other homework in. Well, I mean, you also frequently napped in those kinds of gatherings, didn't you? I mean, frequently might be overstayed. <laughs> I'm not going to say it didn't happen, but frequently. I mean, that's a strong statement there. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to accuse you of anything so, so nefarious. Anyway, so, anyway, just, so I yeah. retract. <clears throat> so of those advanced fields of theology, medicine, and law, you can probably guess which one Girolamo was headed for based on the fact that his mentor was one of the most renowned doctors in Italy at the time. Can you uh, guess? Medicine. 
Bingo. Yes, there we go. You get nice. a point. Additionally, uh, his parents, and this, this whole part was making me chuckle, his parents were eager to see him go into medicine and hopefully attain his grandfather's level of success, which I knew so many people like that in college, right? Yep, yep. That's a the, tale as old as time. time yep. The family mm-hmm. fortunes actually weren't doing so well at that point, and his father's banking business had lost a great deal of money after standing surety for several others whose endeavors failed and thus couldn't pay their debts. So since he had stood for the debts, he was then, uh, you know, saddled with them. So apparently he wasn't careful enough about who he was uh, giving surety for. But anyway, they weren't doing so great. And, you know, it'd been a family that had been, you know, very well, well regarded and successful over the past couple centuries. So, you know, it's sad. It's yeah. sad when you're the you're the dad and you can see that sort of the family's at its low point while you're the dad. Um, so they would yeah. have loved to see their son become a rich, famous doctor and lift the family back up to prosperity and success. Like a phoenix from the ashes. Indeed. So Girolamo did very well in his studies and sped through Plato and Aristotle and the greatest Christian authors like Thomas Aquinas always accompanied by massive amounts of study of the scriptures. By the time he received his master's degree at age 18 and began the course of study in medicine, he had actually studied the Bible so much that he knew large parts of it from memory. Now, I, I, I want to digress again. Um, let me just ask you this. Why is it that so many geniuses in history, they're not just reading, like, texts about, like, oh, here's how to perform an operation or here's how to, like, um, you know, here's the understanding of gravity. They're always, they're always, like, well, not always, but most of the time, at least in this era, they're always, they're just, like, stuck in the Bible. What's up with that? Because ah. we think of the, at least I would say, in in the modern era, we a lot of people think of the Bible as kind of a dumb book that nobody should bother with. Um, but it seems like so many people were just, like, joined at the hip with this thing. Uh, I don't know if you ever thought about that. But I can't. I can't say I have, but I. And I mean, I guess it has something to do with the the reason for why they do what they do. For them, their um, attainments and sort of advances in whatever whatever field they're in aren't just like an isolated thing. They're part of a process of, uh, you know, engaging with creation. And since mm. they're mostly doing it from a Christian worldview, you know, you wouldn't want to do that in isolation from sort of the uh, the OG book. Oh yeah, yeah. Now I can see that. See, because I was thinking, it, it occurred to me um, a while back, but it just just reoccurred to me again that uh, having some kind of a foundational narrative for why you're doing what you're doing actually gets you, you know, through a lot of nonsense that you don't want to be doing. Um, maybe that's it. I really don't know, but I mean that that sounds good to me. I'll I'd take that explanation. But that's coming from a Protestant. I'm just kidding. All right, that's please carry. On. Anyway, anyway, so. <laughs> Even though he was doing well, medicine just wasn't wasn't really doing it for him, however, because after being so deeply committed to theology and philosophy for so many years and, you know, eager to sort of continue with that and to apply himself to sort of the higher truths um, and ah. also disgusted by the decadence and moral slackness he saw around him in society, especially in the one day he had spent in the court of the Duke of Ferrara, he just couldn't ignore it and keep quiet and go be rich and famous doctor. Um, it just—it was really uh, sort of a moral crisis for him. This uh, this trajectory he was on of mm. you know being a doctor and making bank and participating 
as a respected member of society, just he couldn't imagine doing that when he what he was really interested in were uh, you know, theology and prayer and the uh you know, the sort of rigorous aesthetic life that his grandfather had encouraged him to. Mm. And, you know, as we all know, it is far easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. Perhaps that was with him as well. It, it certainly could be. I, I li- Do you have a name for that voice? Because I'd like to be able to cue that when I want it and tell you, do the, <laughs> do the blank voice. Uh, how about the uh, the history documentary voice? I don't know. <laughs> the history documentary voice. No, the history I, I documentary... History documentary would be more like, like, I don't know, let me find a piece of the script here. Medicine just wasn't doing it for him, however. After being so deep... No, that's more like the gun safety voice. This firearm is not safe. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anyway, anyway. um, So yeah, Savonarola found some escape by writing poetry, which his extensive literary training allowed him to do with ease. But while other poets wrote the debauched and frivolous love poetry, which was fashionable, Savonarola, with the same command of meter, style, and composition, wrote dire satires on the vices of Italy, society, and within the church. One of his Hmm. first, written at age 20, was titled De Ruina Mundi, On the Ruin of the World, which he followed up later with with one which was called On the Ruin of the Church. Dear Lord. So yeah, not a... Right for the neck, huh? Not super, uh, not super lighthearted. Um, mm. The rigorous and aesthetic morality which his grandfather had imparted to him caused him uh, to um, just have a constant disgust with society, just this sort of overbearing cloud preoccupying his mind. And he was just mm. finding it harder and harder to sit back and, as he says in a letter to his parents, quote, suffer the blind wickedness of the peoples of Italy. Hmm. Mm, wow. Yeah. Well, I've, yeah, I've felt that before. <laughs> Please. I know. Those Good Italians, God. am I right? Yeah, the Italians. Hmm. So when he was 22, he heard a sermon in which a friar quoted from Genesis, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And he decided he was going to just just go for it and follow this. Just going to take that as his as his cue and go for it. So, wow. His urge to break out of his respectable professional trajectory just was already high, but it grew stronger than ever, and by the end of the year, he had decided to finally leave the path of the successful career his family was so set on him attaining. Hmm. Big decision. Yeah, no, but he he loved his parents very much and couldn't bear the thought of seeing the displeasure and disappointment at his decision, and he was afraid that his resolve would break at the sight and he would change his mind. So he decided to leave in secret on the 24th of April, 1475. But while preparing to leave, he decided to play one last solo on the lute, which was apparently so moving and mournful that his mother, who could hear it, knew that he was leaving and went to him saying, and you can read this in a mournful mother voice. Okay. (laughs) My son, what you are playing today is the sign of parting. And uh, That's so sad. <laughs> I, I know, I know. And she was right. Oh. And so Girolamo smiled and told her t- to not be afraid of what was to come. Wow. Okay, I like this. So in the morning, he left, uh, leaving behind, instead of a letter, a few meditations he had written, in which, to quote one historian, go for it. Uh, 
after the usual expressions of contempt for the world, he alluded to his resolve in a note to a passage from Exodus. The following day, nope, he wrote nope, to... Nope, re- nope, that's oh, sorry, that's, that's the, the end of the quote. That's the well, end of the yeah, quote. thanks for not putting in those close quotes there. Per- I, was, I, was, I was struggling to find the key. Um, anyway. It was a race so, against time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do like that, though. After the usual expressions of contempt for the world. Uh, <laughs> me, when I, me when I write emails. Yeah, for real. <laughs> but the following day, he wrote a real letter to his parents, and this is the only extensive quote in the episode, uh, so I figured I could get away with a long one since it's the only one. So, can you go ahead and read this? This is the letter he writes the day after he leaves his parents. Um. Okay, I see some Latin in here. Would you care to translate uh, any so of the, it? The only Latin that doesn't have a translation is in primis, which means um, in the beginning, or literally among the first things. Okay, All the other perfect, Latin has that's, translations. That's literally the the uh, the first thing he says. Okay, so <clears throat> what uh, do you have a request for a voice, or should I just read this? Whatever story? you think is appropriate. Okay, I'm not going to make it sound silly then. <clears throat> In primis, the reason which moves me to take orders is this. The great wretchedness of the world, the sins of men, lecheries, adulteries, theft, pride, idolatry, cruel blasphemies... For the world has come to this, that no one can be found to do well. Many times a day I used to sing this line weeping, Heu fuge crudelis terras, fuge litus avarum, which I don't know if I pronounced that right because I've forgotten my Latin, but it means, Alas, fly from this cruel land, fly from this shore of avarice. This was because I could not suffer the blind wickedness of the peoples of Italy, and the more so when I saw virtue cast down and vice exalted. This was the greatest suffering that could come upon me in this world. Would it not have been base ingratitude on my part had I prayed God to show me the straight path on which I must walk, and when he had stooped to show it me, I had not taken it? Alas, Lord Jesus, rather may I suffer a thousand deaths than that I should ever show thee such ingratitude. In sol do kissimi pater, which means... Um, uh, sweetest father. So, sweetest father, rather than weep, you must thank Lord Jesus. He has given you a son, has preserved him to you until his twenty-second year, and further has designed to make him one of his champions. Alas, do you not hold it a privilege to have a son who is a soldier of Christ? Do you not believe that this is a great sorrow for me to leave you? Believe me that never since I was born have I suffered greater pain or affliction of mind than in leaving my own flesh and blood and going among strangers to sacrifice my body to Christ and delivering my own free will into the hands of those whom I know nothing. But then, thinking that it is God who calls me and that he was not too proud to come down and serve miserable creatures like ourselves, I could not dare to disobey his gentle and loving voice. Venite ad me omnes qui laboratis et honorati estis et ego reficiam vos, tolite yugam meum super vos. Would you mind? <laughs> My pronunciation was terrible. I don't care. And it just means, come unto me, all, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. But because I know that you blame me for going away secretly and almost fleeing from you, know that my pain was such that, had I shown the suffering I felt in my heart at leaving you, I truly believe that before I could have gone, my heart would have broken and my resolution would have been destroyed. I therefore pray you, my dear father, to make an end of weeping, and to spare me pain and sadness more than I suffer already. 
Not for regret at what I have done, for I would not undo it, were I thereby to rival Caesar's glory, but because I too am flesh and blood and our senses quarrel with our reason. I have a hard fight to prevent the devil leaping on my shoulders, and all the more when I feel for you. Soon these days in which our grief is fresh will pass, and then I hope that you and I will have consolation in this world through grace, and in the next through salvation. Nothing remains but for me to beg you to be manful and comfort. Uh, my mother, I pray both of you to give me your blessing. Wow! So yeah, he knows pretty, what he's doing. Pretty heavy yeah. stuff for a 23-year-old with a promising medical career ahead of him. Right, This, is, I mean, this sounds like uh, true conviction. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I was writing stuff like that when I was 23. Uh, no, I wasn't writing. I don't. I can't write like that today. I can't write at all. They didn't teach me cursive in school. <laughs> so, in the meantime, as he, after he writes this letter, he had immediately gone to the monastery of San Domenico in Bologna and had entered the Order of Preachers, also called the Dominican Order. His family apparently didn't take the letter as well as he'd hoped. Uh, we don't have whatever reply they made. But we do have a short response to it from Savonarola, in which he rebukes his family for trying to stop him, but ends by telling them that they should be happy that God would make him a doctor of souls rather than of bodies. Hmm. Hmm. So Savonarola, um, now having entered the monastery, had no desire to ascend the ranks of the order, but wanted to remain at the bottom and live his life in simple service to his fellow friars, engaging in fasting and prayer far beyond that even of the strictest monasteries. He later uh, remarked about this time in his life, It was where I found freedom, where I did everything that I wanted, for I desired nothing but to do everything that I was commanded. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, so he was happiest when he was he had the least things, basically. Yep. Mm. Okay. So his superiors, however, recognized the intellectual character and aptitude of the young man and compelled him to continue his studies in order to undertake public preaching. And since, you know, whole sort of part of being in a religious order is, you know, obedience, uh, you know, the whole vow of obedience you take, uh, don't really have a choice. If they say, uh, we're not going to waste you, you know, cleaning the toilets, you don't really get to say, nah, I'm going to stay here and clean the toilets. Hmm, okay. So they tell him, nope, uh, we're not, we're not, we're not wasting you there. Uh, you need to, you need to keep studying. So Savonarola soon became well-known in the order and was considered one of its bright, young rising stars for his uh, his passion and intellectual aptitude. By hmm. 1479, he was sent back to Ferrara to complete his theological training. Um, this might have been a normal sort of academic transfer, um, since, you know, they have all these different, different houses of study, and, you know, they might want you to study something that's better at one house. But it's also been suggested that his uh, constant advocacy for strictness and rigor had gone too far for some members of the order in Bologna, and that he was moved because they were tired of him. I could see that. Yeah, I, I could see it too. I could see it. I mean, but also think about <clears throat> it like, the, you know, monasteries may be, well, I don't want to speak too broadly here, but um, again, remember that this is a, a time of like massive social change, or not even social change, but like the way people think about life itself is shifting. Um, and so this is, I would say this, my initial... Feeling of this, and I don't know if this is accurate, but it's that this is a, just a strong reaction to, I mean, what he saw as the negative aspects of this kind of progress that was happening. He's almost, yeah, almost reactionary. Would that be a fair assessment? 
Oh yeah, no, I think I think that is because no, he was he was okay. all about sort of going back to the older ways because you know as a over the centuries things change and develop with monastic rules and whatnot and a lot of times uh, you know certain you know strict practices get uh, get sidelined and they're not quite as hardcore with all the fasting and stuff and Savannah Roll was all about going back to the good old days and like you know less less stuff more praying more fasting. Like, he was all about, like, bringing it back to even more hardcore life in the monastery. Yeah. yeah so, I know people like that. I know so anyway, like that. so they send him to uh, finish his theological training in Ferrara. And one of the common aspects of theological practice and training at this point was to engage in disputatio, literally disputation, which is a formal debate with rules and procedures and sometimes an agreed-upon judge. And these are very common. Um, you do them while you were training, where you'd have... You'd be told, okay, you were arguing X, and the other person's arguing Y, and, you know, then, it, and anyone can come watch, and then they decide, you know, who are who argued their case better, where do you, what do you need to work on, um, that kind of stuff. But they're also then done not in training for actual questions um, when there's something up for dispute. So that's a very hmm. common thing, and he was, um, he was doing these as part of his, you know, theological development. And his rhetoric at such events, all, uh, although it was considered coarse and inelegant, was very powerful, and listeners often found themselves unexpectedly captivated by the friar from Ferrara. Hmm. Mm. That's actually not surprising at all. I mean, I, it, well, I don't want to draw any direct comparisons, but basically when you have a lot of people who have a lot of reasons and have a lot of words, sometimes what cuts through the strongest is somebody who says things very simply. Um... And yeah, no, that's yeah, that's fair. That's there, fair. There, there's a lot of examples I can think of that where people just they figure out that like, OK, let's just let's just cut out the bullshit. Let's start talking about things um, the way that they are. And I know you're all thinking of one example, but that's not the one I'm thinking of. And I won't say who. So um, one of these uh, people who who heard him was a young nobleman, Count Giovanni Pico de, della Mirandola, who at age 16 and himself engaged in uh, studies, heard Savonarola at a disputation in 1482 and greatly admired the man, despite the fact that, you know, his worldly erudition could hardly have been more different from the, the ways of Savonarola. He was really impressed by him and kept in, uh, kept in contact with him because he admired him. That's actually one other later. thing that... Yeah, that's another thing that just doesn't surprise me at all, is... It's it's an opposites attract. It's like a magnetism kind of thing. Typically, the the kinds of people you pick up when you start to take these sort of like like harsher, coarser, like no BS, you know, views, and you're just saying it is people who are like completely on the other side, who are like, hey, they've never heard anything like it before in their lives. Um, so there you go. That's what magnetism is, personality, anyway. Yep. Yep. So in 1482, instead of returning to Bologna to resume studies there. Savonarola, um, who is quite well-known in the order at this point, was assigned as the lector, or uh, teacher, in the convent of San Marco in Florence. In San Marco, uh, Savonarola taught uh, logic and theology to the novices, that is, the, you know, the friars in training, and wrote instructional manuals on ethics, logic, philosophy, and government, composed lots of devotional works, and prepared sermons for local congregations. So at this point, Florence was pretty much the pinnacle of the Italian Renaissance, rich and powerful, filled with trade and commerce and beauty, bedecked with 
beautiful buildings and packed with thinkers and artists of every variety, and of course, as cities go, filled with every vice and decadence imaginable, ruled by Lorenzo de' Medici, who is called Lorenzo the Magnificent. Was he magnificent? I mean, he was a very he was a very capable leader. We'll give him that. Um, okay. And yeah. Lorenzo himself was well versed in the arts and had made himself a great patron of all manner of art. He was very intelligent and sophistical, clever and calculating. And he and his family ran Florence as the patriarch of a mighty banking family, um, more akin perhaps to the Godfather than to a king, because uh, hmm. he wasn't technically a, the king of Florence or the Duke of Florence or everything like that. He was more of a first citizen who ran everything with his uh, his family. Yeah, hmm. so a little bit, a little bit of mafia vibes. Yeah, but also like well versed hmm. in the arts, a great patron, intelligent, fiscal, clever, and calculating. That sounds exactly like some of our patrons on Patreon.com slash We Talk About Dead People. <laughs> <laughs> Become a godfather. <laughs> anyway, um, so this this was a new world to Savonarola. For while Ferrara was no backwater, it might as well have been the Yukon compared to Florence. Um, hmm. In San Marco, Savonarola's zeal permeated his teaching of the scriptures to the novice brothers. Uh, one pupil at the time actually wrote, His teachings raised men's hearts above all human things and made them burn with love of God. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he was so he actually often departed from the formal rituals of instruction and sometimes taught his students outdoors, taking illustrations from nature for whatever theology he was talking about. And Excellent. he also avoided the strictures of scholarly minutia, prefer, preferring instead moral exhortation and inspiration to sort of, you know, lo logical philosophy and syllogisms and stuff you can chart out on a board. He was more about uh, turning his students into saints instead of scholars. Nice. <laughs> I mean, there's a place for both, obviously, but... Uh... Yeah. So, despite his great success with students within the monastery, Florence itself was less welcoming. Savonarola mm. was mocked for his rustic accent and lack of refinement. His listeners wanted preaching that was more of an exercise in sophistication and education, not zeal. They wanted mm. quotations and allusions to popular poets, not exhortations from the Old Testament. And in fact, before long, almost no one would come hear him preach because they found it boring. That's interesting because, I mean, well, I can only speak for what I know about Protestantism, but it seems like I would say the last five to ten years, people have been trying to over-sophisticate things in preaching, and it's kind of boring. <laughs> um... Yeah, I don't know. Just, just a. That's just my point of view. Yeah. So keep in mind, this is his first, uh, you know, his first sort of preaching experience. So he's he's not really honed at it either. So mm -hmm. it's sort of a combination both of a you know tough crowd and also he's inexperienced. And it. he's not from there. And he's not like, from there. Yeah. Um. So one day in 1484, he was composing a sermon, and uh, what he writes is that he received as if by some revelation. Um, some warning about a coming chastisement of church and society. It's never, it, he doesn't sort of list out exactly what it was he saw or heard, just that he's very, very um, insistent that he received a warning about a coming chastisement. Hmm. And it is, um, it is said that while he was at San Marco, he had turned his lecturer's chair into a pulpit with his sort of inspirational teaching to the students, 
but that he had turned his pulpit into a lecturer's chair and bored his public audience by preaching sermons that sounded too much like simple scriptural commentary and, you know, weren't sort of interesting and engaging. So this was um, this was going to change, however, after he after he had this revelation, because he finally has sort of a a new driving force behind it. Mm. So right. armed with this new conviction that a scourge was coming upon the world, Savonarola left Florence, which had rejected him, and spent the next several years as an itinerant preacher uh, with a message of repentance and reform in the cities and monasteries of northern Italy. Um, so he's just, you know, sort of sent around as a visiting preacher and, you know, goes to different places. And as his letters show, his confidence and his sense of mission grew along with his widening reputation. Hmm. Because, yeah, outside of Florence, he's he's more well-received, and that probably also makes uh, makes him also get better at preaching, because I feel like it's easier to get better at something when you're having some sort of, you know, positive experience with it as opposed to when everyone just makes fun of your accent yeah that's true that's true and also like if you're visiting lots of different places you don't know what's going to work so you might start to find the things that do work with different groups of people yeah Yeah. so he was uh he was zealous to save souls from what he saw as a wicked and corrupt society his preaching often focused on the book of revelation and from that time he became more and more absorbed in apocalyptic ideas concerning his own era the judgment of God, which he saw threatening it, and the regeneration of the church, which would follow. Hmm. 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 Yeah, apocalyptic. Have, have- I mean, I was going to say, I don't, I don't want to just keep digressing here, even though I do. Um, I do keep digressing, and I do like digressing, but um, yeah, I, I, this is this is another one of those situations where it's like, oh yeah, I, I think I know people like this. <laughs> you know, it's it's very much like, when you're in a, a time such as, you know, this time that we're talking... Oh, hold on. That was weird. Static electricity discharge in my mic. Hope that didn't get picked up. Let me check. Yeah, that's probably fine. Whatever. Um, but I was going to say, like, yeah, there's times in history where it seems like we couldn't possibly get any worse than this, right? Or things couldn't possibly get any worse than they are, you know, whatever. Um, there's always somebody who comes along and is like, well, guys... It's your own damn fault. <laughs> um, I don't know. I lost my train of thought because of the static electricity. Thank you, Tesla. It was the CIA. It was the CIA. <laughs> anyway, um, so in 1490, Savonarola's erstwhile admirer, Count Pico della Mirandola, who we talked about, um, who had spent the last 10 years in a wide variety of academic and esoteric pursuits, including learning Hebrew, Arabic, and Aramaic, had wound up in Florence in the court and under the protection of Lorenzo de' Medici, Lorenzo the Magnificent, because Pico had gotten into some weird stuff, including Hermeticism and Kabbalah, and had written Mm -hmm. a book of 900 theses intended to reconcile and unite all philosophy, including Platonism, Aristotelianism, Zoroastrianism, Christianity, Kabbalic mysticism, and what have you. It it was some weird stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And he had set up in Rome to promote it, and wanted to hold public discussions of his work with visiting scholars. Now hold but, up. Yep. I want to point out one other thing. Yep. Whenever whenever you start running into the apocalyptic people, you also come run into the people who are trying to unite all religions. Um this is <laughs> this characterized of course the uh the um Helena Blavatsky uh theosophy era that preceded and included the um 
the problems we that the czar ran into with Rasputin and um yeah that's uh, this is this is a hallmark I love seeing patterns <laughs> this always comes up please carry on so uh, the Pope at the time Innocent VIII wasn't too enthused about Pico uh, setting up and put a halt to the public events while the book was to be examined to see if it was um, questionable. Well, they knew it was questionable, to see how questionable it was. Um, Pico was able to talk his way out of most of the objections, and only 13 of the 900 theses were condemned. But Mm. eventually, after a lot of back and forth and arguments between Pico and the Pope, the whole book eventually ended up being condemned as heretical and subversive, and then Pico ended up in jail in France, because the King of France put him in jail when he was over there. Um, Mm. anyway, Pico's not the subject, so we don't want to get too much into it, but Lorenzo de' Medici secured his release, uh, from prison in France, and he moved to Florence to Lorenzo's court. Gotcha. Uh, from there, he convinced Lorenzo to use his influence to have Savonarola transferred back to Florence, because he was, uh, Pico was pretty shaken up by all the weird stuff he'd gotten into and the fallout with the church and hoped that renewing his friendship with the ruggedly moral and upright friar would help him sort of get back on track and find peace. Hmm. Sounds like a plan. Yep. So, after the paperwork was done and Savonarola's new orders were given, he set out on foot from Bologna to Florence in June, which is a distance of about 70 miles. After 10 miles of walking, he was exhausted by the heat um, and stopped to rest, and he met a lone traveler who shared his food and water with him and walked with him as far as the gate of Florence, and then said, do what you have been sent by God to do in Florence, and then just disappears back the way they came. How mysterious. Indeed, and you can probably imagine what was later read into this by, uh, you know, Savonarola's followers. Sure, that he probably walked with Jesus, right? I think an angel probably, but yeah, okay. same, same idea. Um, yeah. So, Fair enough. Savonarola had changed greatly since his last time in Florence. His oratory and speech had been honed by years of preaching, and his resolve strengthened by his apocalyptic forebodings. Uh-oh. So, Savonarola preached first, first, his first time was on the first epistle of John and on the book of Revelation. And he ended up drawing such large crowds that um, after just a couple uh, times preaching, he had to be moved to the cathedral because the church at the monastery of San Marco was no longer big enough for all the crowds. And he took no prisoners with his, uh, his fiery, uh, I don't know why I have preaching tire written. Maybe those, his fiery preaching and tireless warnings. May, I don't, yeah, I, I don't know why that's in the, the not script. Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> he took no prisoners with his fiery warnings remarking, uh, and this is in reference to one of the verses of revelation that mentions a hailstone. I am the hailstone that shall break the heads of those who do not take shelter. Whoa. Oof. Yeah. And without mentioning names, he made very pointed allusions to tyrants who had usurped the freedom of the people and their allies, the rich and powerful who neglected and exploited the poor. He Hmm. complained of the evil lives that were lived by corrupt clergy and called for repentance and renewal in both church and society before the arrival of a divine scourge. Hmm. He keeps prophesying this divine scourge, and I'm beginning to wonder what it might be. Hmm. We'll so, see, I'm sure. Although the, uh, the the Medici, who were ruling, pretty much just ignored him, um, 
m- many of the elites scoffed at him and his his in and um you know they made fun of the same things you know the funny accent and all that but it was it just wasn't sticking the same way it did the first time and his mm. influence especially among the poor could not be contained because you know he's preaching against the elites and so that's going to that's going to resonate mhm <laughs> And in the next year, in 1491, he became prior, that's means he's in charge, of the Monastery of San Marco, and he made manifest his feelings towards the ruler of Florence by failing to visit Lorenzo de' Medici, who was the patron of the monastery. Um, mm. So even though he's in charge of the monastery, he, he's not even going to see him, except once, um, which is, I didn't put this in the not script, but because the Medici had paid for the building of this monastery, Every year on a certain day, I can't remember what it was, the prior of the monastery came and preached at the Medici Palace, and Savonarola went and preached his usual um, fiery sermons against the uh, the corruption and the elites right in the palace of Lorenzo de' Medici. Oh my god. The yeah. stones on this guy. <laughs> yeah. So, once he was in charge, Savonarola began at once uh, reforming the monastery itself, um, San Marco and the other monasteries of, of Tuscany, the region around Florence, were separated from the Lombard congregation of the Dominican Order, so they're sort of district province, and were formed in 1493 uh, with the Pope's approval into an independent congregation uh, so that it can sort of do, it, do its own thing. Uh, monastic life was reformed in this new congregation by rigid observance of the original rule. So all the stuff hmm. he wanted to do back when he was first starting out, like, we're taking it back, you know, there's... We're going to be much, much more hardcore, more rigorous. Um, he was he was all about that. And now that he's in charge of the Monastery of San Marco, which now has its own sort of independent uh, congregation, he's able to do that. Since he was the, the vicar general of the congregation of San Marco. And um, he set the example of a strict life of self-mortification himself. His cell was small and poor, and I've been there. I've actually been in his cell. It's tiny. Oh no, like, shit! Oh yeah, it's like a little. It's like a little closet. Um, it was not a comfortable place at all. And he just like slept on this sort of wooden frame. You know, very, very little. Uh, very little in the way of comforts there. Hmm. Um, his clothing was very coarse and, uh, you know, nothing fancy at all. Um, his food was simple and scanty. He he was he was living it. He wasn't just you know talking the talk. Like he was like we're gonna we're gonna go back to the old days. We're gonna be hardcore about this monasticism thing. And he was he was first in line. Well, I mean you got to respect that, I guess. Yep. That's so the the lay brothers, that is the the Dominicans who weren't priests, um, because you know the priests had other responsibilities, you know, saying mass and sacraments and all that. They were right. obliged to learn a trade, um. And to, uh, you know, work hard physically. And the, the clerics, the priests, were kept constantly at their studies. So it's like, we're not, nothing's going to be idle. Like, the ones who are priests, when they're not saying mass and, you know, administering to the faithful, they're going to be studying. The ones who aren't priests are going to be, you know, working hard and improving themselves. And it was, it was a big thing. Uh, many new brethren entered the monastery. When he took over, there were about 50 monks and... Within a couple years, there were 238. Including, yeah, including uh, children of many of the most prominent families in the city. That's a change. That's a change. Yeah, so like the the, the dynamism... Something's resonating, yeah. The dynamism this guy had to have was, uh, it's undeniable. 
I'm so glad you used that word because that's well, that's that's a word that I don't hear much, but I only just recently rediscovered as being a very very powerful word uh, for dealing with uh, changing times. You've got to be dynamic, and it is interesting to see even the rich children getting involved in this because it just means that something's resonating. And I think um, at any other time, not any other time, but at other times, it would be easy to look on this and be like. Oh, you know, they don't they don't actually want to do this. They're just doing it because, you know, he's really really persuasive or something. But no, I think at certain times in history, people are they're looking to pare back some of the growth, you know. Um but yeah, all right, please carry on. So meanwhile, Savonarola preached with the same burning zeal and rapidly was winning great influence in the city. He was looked upon and venerated by his followers as a sort of prophet. And uh he he was not uh, he was not worried about what anybody thought because without regard to the consequences he just lashed out at the immoral pleasure-seeking life of the Florentines and the Florentines you know sort of stung by his words uh really seemed to listen to the message and many at least temporarily became very repentant and contrite and returned to the exercise of a Christian virtuous life mm. mm-hmm and he bitterly attacked Lorenzo the magnificent as the promoter of immoral paganized art, of frivolous living and decadence, and as a unjust tyrant of the city. That's quite a change. But, you know, what maybe it? this... Well, What's didn't, quite didn't he kind of... Maybe I missed it, but didn't he kind of get along with Lorenzo? Oh, no, Lorenzo, Lorenzo only brought him, brought him to Florence because Pico asked him to. Okay, so Lorenzo's just sort Loren- of maybe indifferent... Yeah, Lorenzo's the the godfather, you know, he just runs the city, he just kind of ignores Savonarola. Gotcha, okay. And Savonarola was pretty much from the beginning extremely critical of Lorenzo and his, his you know, mafia family. But he's also not letting up, that's the part that he's, I yeah, he's probably going to He's not letting in. up, no. Mm-hmm. And uh, circumstances were uh, were starting to seem to give credibility to Savonarola's apocalyptic message, because... The Medici family's weakening grip on power was becoming apparent because uh, they're they're kind of in a bad position because the French and Italian wars are starting, which is a long, confusing thing because the King of France had a claim to the throne of Naples, and so there are all various alliances, and it's all very confusing, but it's the Medici are in a bad spot in the middle of it. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's becoming obvious that they're uh, they're not in a good position, and so... Hmm, maybe the Savonarola guy was onto something with the whole, you know, scourge he talked about coming. And, in addition, the, uh, the flowering of expensive Renaissance art and culture that's all over the city, which is, you know, paid for by the riches of these wealthy Italian banking families, now seemed to be a mockery of the growing misery in Italy, as, pe- you know, people are suffering and poor, but there's all this, you know, extremely expensive stuff that the, uh, the banking families have got, and it's creating mm. sort of a backlash of resentment among the people. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yep, and the uh, the and, elites of go on. I was gonna say because like the last episode we did, Watt Tyler, um, is kind of a similar deal. It's like the wealth disparity gets bad, and people start to notice. Oh, that guy's got something really nice, and what if I just went and took it? Uh, I don't know if it gets that bad in this story, but, um, you know, it was interesting to see that in Watt Tyler, how naturally that grew out of um, the situation. Yeah, yeah. So the Lorenzo and the elites of Florence tried repeatedly to convince Savonarola to moderate his tone and dial it back, 
But he always refused, even when Lorenzo threatened to uh, to exile him. And uh, he basically called the bluff. And Lorenzo knew that he would face a rioting populace if he exiled Savonarola, so there really wasn't anything he could do. Hmm. Which I, I do, I, I like that. I like how he called the bluff and was like, do it. He, he what now? I like how Savonarola called the bluff. And when Lorenzo oh, threatened, yeah, yeah. To egg, threatened to exile him, Savonarola was like, okay, do it. And Lorenzo knew yeah. that. He, he wasn't able to do that. Couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. So on the 8th of April, Ooh. 1492. Oh, hold up. Can you start that paragraph again? Your mic just blew up. It's, pro- it's probably Audacity's automatic game-changing thing just decided to go crazy. Yeah. J- jump in. All right. Where, where do you want me to start? On the 8th of April. On the 8th of April, 1492, Lorenzo de' Medici died, attended at his deathbed by none other than Savonarola himself, giving him the last rites. There's this legend that gets floated around that Savonarola refused to grant him absolution unless he restored the liberty of Florence, but that has shown to be a later fabrication. Um, mm. You know, and Savonarola is a, uh, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a priest, he's a very devout, he wouldn't sort of hold out on the sacraments for a political thing like that, I don't think. Yeah, well, um, I mean... Who- and it was later shown to be a, 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 la- a um, you know, a later sort of bit of the myth that got added on. And so yeah, Lorenzo... Lorenzo dies, and he is succeeded by his son, Piero, who's called Piero the Unfortunate. Oh. Which, I, <laughs> I, I love that. Like, you know... I, lo- I love names like that, like, you know, the sort of medieval and renaissance names, you know, Louis the Pious. I think there's a Charles the Bald. I'm pretty sure there is. Um, there's someone the Fat. I can't remember who was the <laughs> Fat. Um, but anyway, yeah, Piero the Unfortunate. Um, so you can probably see where that's going to go. Um, and Piero was the lesser man than his father in every regard. He just hmm. he didn't know how to run things. He was not not good at it. Um, he well, accomplished. Okay. Yes. Go on. So I, I just wanted to say like that always happens. Um, it always happens. You have, like, this this uh, person who is a godfather or a king or, you know, fill in the blank with whatever leadership position where they've got a handle on things, and they may be... Okay, it reminds me a little bit of... Was it Bismarck? He he came up with real politic, and it was, like, almost so complicated nobody could really follow it. Is that right? <laughs> uh, probably. That sounds right. Okay. Yeah, because I remember hearing in, in a, my history class a long time ago that Basically, there was this system that only... Ah, I really shouldn't say... I'm going to say it at allegedly. Um, Bismarck uh, invented a political system that he knew the ins and outs of, and when he was gone, everything kind of went to hell because nobody could figure out how, to u- how he was using it. They were like, wait, so you've got contracts with this guy, and it means that you've got to be friends with this dude, and you have to grease this palm to make this work? Um and, you know, the people who followed up, we just couldn't keep up with it, basically. He was yeah. the linchpin. Yep. Yeah. No, that's that's pretty much how this works. Um, okay. So, yeah, Piero accomplished very little and was quickly losing control over the city. Especially since, as I said, the Medici were not kings, but they were more like first citizens who ruled by influence and negotiation rather than actual royal power. So when you're not at, when you don't actually have sort of like you know, a legal framework of I'm in charge hmm. because I'm the king. It's even harder to, uh, for, a, you know, an incompetent person to maintain that kind of position. Right. Because it is operating, like you said, like the Godfather, the mafia, it's just influence and, you know, 
all that stuff. Interesting. So meanwhile, uh, Pico uh, had become a devoted follower of Savonarola after you know bringing him back to Florence, and had rejected his earlier interests in dark and esoteric subjects, as well as destroying his own poetry, which he had come to consider immoral. And he also gave away his fortune to the poor. Hmm. Which, that's nice. That's a nice change, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Um, then in 1494, he died mysteriously. Um, and it's later, we'll talk about this in a second, confirmed to have been poisoned, likely assassinated by Piero, Piero the Unfortunate, who wanted to deprive Savonarola of one of his trusted friends and colleagues. And it's funny, it wasn't until 2007 that his body was exhumed and tested and was determined that he was poisoned. Whoa. That's amazing that they could figure that out that far along. Yeah, no, they were able they were able to determine arsenic poisoning from his uh from his remains. <laughs> Only 500 years later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I I was shocked when I read that as well. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, um Piero is not great at anything, but he can, you know, murder people. Okay. But well. <laughs> that was that was not the only that was not the only trouble brewing because in September of 1494, King Charles VIII of France crossed the Alps with a formidable army, which just throws Italy into political chaos. Many people in Florence viewed the arrival of King Charles as proof of Savonarola's gift of prophecy, since he'd you know predicted something big is going to come and uh, you know chastise a society in Italy. And now mm. there's this big-ass army coming over the Alps. So you can see how people would make that connection. Yep, um, here we go. So Charles advanced on Florence and sacked several t- uh, Tuscan strongholds and was threatening to punish the city for refusing to support his expedition because um, Piero had uh, tried to stay neutral between the French and the Italian alliance he's fighting against. And so Piero... Gotcha tries to negotiate with him and fails miserably and then when he returns to Florence after negotiation he is faced with an enraged populace since they already didn't like him and now he's failed to convince the king of France to not come sack their city so the populace takes to the streets to expel Piero the unfortunate Mm. how unfortunate for him but while that's happening Savonarola leads a delegation to the camp of the French king um, sometime in mid-November 1494 And he presses on King Charles to spare Florence and enjoins him to take up his divinely appointed role as a reformer of the church. He's saying, look, don't don't sack Florence. Use this opportunity to, you know, fix the corruption in Italian society in the church. And after a short, tense occupation of the city, but not a sacking, just he was there. And another intervention by Savonarola, the French resumed their journey southward without having harmed the city. Wow. Well, thanks, Savonarola. So, Savonarola, now viewed as a hero and the savior of Florence, as you can imagine, declared Mm. that by answering his call to penitence, the Florentines had begun to build a new Ark of Noah, which had saved them from the waters of the Divine Flood. Well, that's that's some very fancy language, but, you know, hey, um, it seems to have worked. (laughs) Yep. And so now, um, you know, the French are gone. The Medici are gone, and so Florence is just kind of there, and so they have to make a new government, and what is established is a sort of theocratic democracy um, based on the political and social doctrines which Savonarola had proclaimed. Um, so it, become, it becomes a republic, basically, a sort of Christian republic state, 
Uh, Christ was considered to be the king of Florence and the protector of its liber- of its liberties. A great council, which was representative of all the citizens, became the governing body of the republic, and the law of Christ was to be the basis for political and social life. Savonarola himself didn't hold any political office or sort of directly dictate the politics and affairs of state, but his teachings and his ideas were pretty authoritative, as you can imagine. I can also imagine that we're about to enter a very interesting phase of uh, political life in, in Florence, because... Well, this is a very, very different way of handling things, that is for sure. Yep. And so around this time is when the famous bonfire of the vanities started. Have you have you heard of that? That's one of the the terms. It rings a bell. <laughs> yeah, um I believe it's in um it's in one of the Assassin's Creed games, I think. Really? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now you know it's um, legit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what this is that inspired by Savonarola, the people of Florence gathered together and burned everything that might be seen as a stepping stone to sin. Luxuries, playing cards, ostentatious decorations, pictures of beautiful women, writings considered immoral, anything which seems to be sort of a, a gateway to going back to the the old sort of Florentine decadence. Hmm. And certainly there must have been, in some cases, a degree of coercion among the populace and their neighbors eager to root out sin as, you know, people are going around and it's like you can't... It's probably hard not to get caught up in that. Like, you yep. know, when when everyone's, you know, going through their houses, pulling stuff out. Like, if you didn't want to pull stuff out, I don't know if that was really an option when the, your, yeah, your whole yeah, neighborhood's is, doing it. Yeah, the whole neighborhood. I mean, it's it's uh, moral... I don't know what the word is. Moral outrage. Uh, it's sort of like... I don't know how else to put it, but like, one, like uh, when you suddenly begin to perceive or a population suddenly begins to perceive something as sinful uh, there's a almost a wholesale uh, fiery rejection of it and this is you know this goes well this happens outside of Christianity many times it happens with uh, political ideologies and we saw it in China with uh, you know the Maoist destruction of all traditional art I mean when something gets labeled as sinful, very and pe- the people accept it or agree with that statement. Very quickly, it gets purged, and it's it's. I mean, it's as fast as a, a wildfire. So, <laughs> yeah, and this, that is an apt analogy with fire, since that's what they did. Um, so yeah, I'm sh- there was you know certainly a degree of coercion, but to a large extent, you know, this was a popular movement that people were doing. The uh, the famous artist Botticelli had actually become a follower of Savonarola and burned some of his own paintings. Um, which he'd come to view as immoral, spurred on by Savonarola's condemnation of some contemporary religious art. And this Savonarola said, You have made the virgin appear dressed as a whore. Well, if that doesn't get you to burn your painting, I don't know what will. (laughs) So, um, you know, uplifted by this sudden liberation from the Medici and the prophetic promises of Savonarola, the Florentines embraced his campaign to rid the city of vice. New laws were passed against adultery, public drunkenness, and other moral transgressions. Uh, and Savonarola's lieutenant, uh, brother Silvestro Maruffi, organized uh, boys and young men to patrol the streets to curb immodest dress and behavior. That's amazing. <laughs> imagine Does that try- always happen? Imagine trying to be a degenerate and getting, like, chased by a bunch of ten-year-olds with sticks. <laughs> well... It stops being fun at that point. But I was going to say, it seems like this always happens at the end of a long road of, like, 
um, you might say, uh, libertine living, there's always, like, a group of young boys with sticks who come out of the woodwork to beat your ass. <laughs> <laughs> it always happens. <sighs> oh, sorry. Please carry on. Yeah. So, and it's with what we just said about the new laws, I think it's important to note, you know, it's not, Savonarola isn't writing these laws or passing them. These are being passed by the, you know, the civilian government of Florence, but it's that his ideas have been adopted and are suddenly, you know, the in thing. And so yeah. everyone's, everyone's going into it. He's not sort of, he's not the one actually running the government. It's just the government is looking at what Savonarola's ideas are and taking it, taking it on. Well, I'll just say, like, these are always popular movements. And I don't mean, like, popular, you know, when you hear the word popular, like, everyone liked this. Um, and that means it was true. Like, it was good. Um, when something's popular, it just means that the, the crowd is, like, moving rapidly toward the other extreme from what they were already doing. Um, you know, like, uh, you could say Maoism was popular in China. Um, but these these are, again, massively reactionary um and I don't mean like I don't mean that in a negative sense. They're just reactive to say the status quo. Things have been going along a certain way, and it's like, oh my god! Like almost like suddenly people realize that we've gone too far. We might have gone too far in a few places, and then it's just this tidal wave. Um, and you always have these Savonarola type guys who come out in front, and they're like, "It's coming! It's coming! You don't see it, but it's coming!" And then everyone's like, "Nah, we can do this forever." And then suddenly they realize, wait, I see it now, and they panic. It's just, it's a fascinating paradigm in history uh, that we see again and again. Anyway, please carry on. So, uh, for a while, uh, the Pope, who at this point is Alexander VI, who is one of the worst popes ever. Um, good. <laughs> yeah. No, Alexander VI, not, not a good guy. Um, he tolerates Savonarola's denunciation against the behavior of some clergy, and... The bad behavior that Savonarola would have uh, would have been denouncing is definitely stuff he was doing. He was not a he was not a very moral person. Um, but the the breaking point was when Florence, in this Savonarola inspired government, declined to join his new alliance against the French, and he mm. blamed this on Savonarola. And you can imagine why they declined, since it was sort of the French were the instrument by which the Medici were kicked out. So Savonarola right. is sort of in as much as he has a political platform, it's definitely on the pro-French side. Gotcha. Yep, makes sense. So, in an exchange of letters uh, between the Pope and Savonarola, it ends in sort of an impasse in which Savonarola tried to, uh, he tried to break break it up um, by sending the Pope a book he wrote which recounted his, you know, prophetic career and his visions and stuff and describe you know, described them and tried to say, look, I, you know, I'm I'm not a a heretic or anything like that you know i i have this mission and things are coming true and i'm not trying to you know i'm not trying to rebel against the church but i don't want to join your anti-french alliance and that's not a mm. sort of a legitimate thing for you to demand of me hmm. Hmm. since it's a purely political decision right yep so the Pope was not convinced, but he needed Florence for his political alliance against the French, and he was thus hesitant to deal too harshly with Savonarola, since he had a lot of supporters, so he knew if he really sort of uh, took the gloves off, it'd be really hard to get Florence to cooperate, since Savonarola has a lot of supporters in Florence. Still. Right, um, right, right. So he summoned Savonarola to appear before him in Rome, 
And when Savonarola refused with the excuse of poor health and fear of being attacked on the journey, which is probably legitimate, um, mm -hmm. Savonarola or Alexander, the Pope, banned him from further preaching. And for a while, Savonarola obeyed, but he eventually resumed his sermons and he denounced secret enemies at home whom he, rightly, suspected of being in league with Pope Alexander against him and his supporters in Florence. Hmm. Well, I mean, you can't really hold back. <laughs> yeah. Forever. And so, on May 12th, 1497, he was excommunicated um, for this, and in June, he published a letter just called Against the Excommunication, in which he argues that the excommunication was fraudulently obtained because it wasn't actual matter to be excommunicated. He hadn't, it was a political decision, and he sought to show that the judgment against him was null and void, and he declared once again that as regard to, you know, his teaching, he had always submitted to the judgment of the church and that he was not trying to, you know, he wasn't preaching a new theology, he wasn't preaching a different version of the church, he was just preaching for the uh, against corruption and immorality, and that this was sort of a political uh, persecution. Gotcha. Okay. Mm. So, in the meantime, Savonarola had once again entered the pulpit on October 11th in order to rouse the Florentines against Pier uh, Piero de' Medici, who's still making... Because he just fled, so he's still always trying to find ways to get back into Florence. And so every once now and again, the... You know, Florentines have to be reminded over of what a scumbag he is. Right. Um, and on 11th of February, the Council of Florence, the governing council, actually commanded Savonarola to keep preaching. Well. So, yeah, I mean, what, what are you going to do? Right. <laughs> but as sort of, you know, things are things are getting getting touchy politically since, you know, there's the Pope is not not happy, and, you know, the other Italian neighboring states which are in the Pope's alliance aren't happy, and there's a lot of uncertainty, and so the in Florence itself, the opposition to Savonarola also grew more powerful, since many formerly powerful and influential figures had lost their elite status in this new republic and weren't happy about it. Right, of course not. And, you know, they'll, they I'm sure they played along for a while, and, you know, they burned the they burned the dice and the dirty books and stuff, but you know they're they're not uh, they're not wanting this to continue. And then there are you know there are factions in Florence which uh, would prefer alliance with the Papal States and the other Italian states instead of alliance with France. Right. So then, when the King of France makes peace and leaves the Italian Peninsula, it's pretty much only a matter of time before things sort of boil over in Florence, especially in Florence, since it's a very volatile city, uh, you know, and it had so quickly turned on the Medici, who'd been ruling them for ages, you know, they turned on them, like, instantly, and so it's really only a matter of time before, uh, things pop off. Makes sense. Yeah, so, and, you know, it's, it's weird, because, you know, Savonarola has never been the government, and so he doesn't really have, like, a position... He's right. just a really, really popular preacher who, for a long time, everyone in the government felt that they had to go, you know, do, enact his ideas. Um, you know, who knows how many of them were sincere and how many were just riding the political wave or whatever. Yep. But, um, you know, there's sort of discontent is brewing, as it does, because a lot of times when, you know, extreme changes happen, for a while, everyone's cool with it, but then really quickly the cracks appear. Right, yeah. And that's the difference between 
you know, political and legal. Well, I want to point out the difference between political and legal power. It's like legally, the Medici, they're nothing. They're just rich and they have influence and whatnot. But they have lots of political power because they're just really good at politicking. Um, but when that political power transfers very quickly from an elite class to the people, just almost just because they're angry, uh, suddenly they also don't have they don't have legal and they don't have political power, and now they have to sort of scramble to sort of get things back in order. And it's almost never done with legal mandate. It's typically um, done with some kind of campaign, whether that be military or propaganda or whatever. Yeah. So soon a uh, a rival priest who did not like Savonarola from the Franciscan order offered to undergo an ordeal by fire against Savonarola. Um, so that's not a thing they did anymore. That That is very out there. Um, that's when, you know, people representing two different sides walk across hot coals, and uh, if someone, you know, doesn't get burned, they then take that as sort of a divine, uh, you know, nod that, okay, that guy's right. Wow. And this is not okay. a thing that's done. It's not a thing that's done. This has literally not been done for hundreds of years. Um, wow. So this Franciscan priest um, offers to undergo an ordeal by fire. Um, without consulting Savonarola, Savonarola's friend, uh, Domenico de Pescia, who's another Dominican priest, offered himself as a surrogate to represent Savonarola, and Savonarola felt that he could not afford to refuse since this other priest had already, you know, sort of publicly committed himself to do this. Um, he, you know, feared what would happen if Savonarola, if he then, you know, ordered the other priest not to do it. Hmm. So, uh, the trial by fire, which was the first one in Florence for over seven, over 400 years, was <laughs> set for the 7th of April. Yeah, I said, this is not a thing that was done. Like, Yeah, <laughs> starting to pick up on that. Jeez. And a massive crowd filled the central square, eager to see if God would intervene, and if so, on which side? Um, yeah, I'd want to know, too. <laughs> classic classic massive crowds, right? They're not nice. even there to support anyone. They're just there to, you know, get their cue. Right, see what happens. But right before it was to begin, however, a rainstorm extinguished the fire. And even though you could certainly argue that this outcome should have favored the challenged party, since the other side said, let's do an ordeal by fire, and then rain puts out the fire, if you think about that, it seems like that would be a sign that the other side was right, wouldn't you? The one who I'm... hadn't suggested the fire? Yeah, I could see that. But, I would see it too, but, um, the crowds were disappointed and angry, and they wanted to see people walk over hot coals, and they were whipped <laughs> up by the anti-Savonarola factions in the city, um, so, you know, Medici agents and probably agents of Pope Alexander and people who didn't like Savonarola sort of got the crowd going into a frenzy. Um, you know, the burden of proof had sort of been shifted onto Savonarola, and he was now being blamed for the fact that the ordeal by fire hadn't happened, and it was seen as a condemnation of him. Hmm, interesting. So, soon the crowd became a mob, which actually attacked the monastery of San Marco, and... Fra Girolamo Savonarola, Fra Domenico, and Fra Silvestro Maruffi, that's the one with the boys with sticks, were arrested and imprisoned by the city government, which now had suddenly been taken over by the anti-Savonarola faction. Mm. It's amazing mm -hmm. how quickly that can turn around. Yep, it is amazing. It's always like that, though. That's what you get yeah. when you destabilize. So during the, uh, during the next few weeks, all three were tortured on the rack. 
uh, the torturers sparing only Savonarola's right arm in order that he might be able to sign a confession. Jeez. Under yeah, under extreme torture, Savonarola confessed to having invented his prophecies and visions, and then recanted, and then after another week of torture, confessed again, and then recanted again, and in light of the fact that it was the Renaissance, not the Middle Ages, common misconception, when all those creative torture devices you see on TV were invented, it's kind of hard to blame him after weeks of torture. Yeah, I don't know if I'd last uh, five minutes. <laughs> Jesus. Oof. But during, uh, during his time of confinement and torture, he completed a written meditation on Psalm 50 entitled In Felix Ego, Unhappy Eye, in which he pleaded with God for mercy for his physical weakness in confessing to a crime he believed he did not commit. Hmm. On the day of his execution, May 23rd, 1498, he was still working on another meditation, this one on Psalm 31. I don't know how so, you could focus, but that, you gotta hand it to him. <laughs> yeah, so on the day for execution, he was taken out to the Piazza della Signoria, which is the main square in Florence, along with Fra Silvestro and Fra Domenico. The three were ritually stripped of their clerical vestments, degraded as heretics and schismatics, and given over to the secular authorities to be executed. And each on a separate gallows, they were hanged, while fires were ignited below them to consume their bodies, contrary Ugh. to what you may think the dude from Assassin's Creed wasn't there. Oh. Uh, way to Appa ruin it. Yeah, because apparently in the game, um, Savonarola is the antagonist, but then as he's being hung and burned, uh, the Assassin's Creed dude does some sort of triple running flip thing onto the gallows and stabs him to put him out of his misery so he doesn't burn to death. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's I, I, pretty I, absurd. I uncovered this in my research. Um, oh, I'm glad you played all the Assassin's Creed games for this episode. <laughs> so, um... Patron the, money well spent. <laughs> so where this where this execution was is actually the same place where the van... Sorry. The bonfire nice. of the vanities had been lit right on the same spot, and a witness wrote that his executioner lit the flame, exclaiming, the one who wanted to burn me is now himself put to the flames. Jeez, so, okay. the executioner was probably a jerk. Um, yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> another witness, Luca Landucci, who uh, wrote in his diary that the burning took several hours and that the remains were several times broken apart and mixed with brushwood so that the not the slightest piece could be later recovered, since the authorities did not want Savonarola's followers to have any relics for future veneration of the preacher whom they considered a saint, and then the ashes of the three were thrown in the River Arno. So they literally burned them, mixed the ashes with wood, burned it again, and then threw it in a river. Well, that doesn't do the job. I don't know what will. Yeah. So the Friars of San Marco, um, even after his death, fostered a devotion to the three martyrs and venerated Savonarola as a saint, and by preserving many of his sermons and writings, they helped keep his political and religious ideas alive until the return of the Medici in 1512 ended the Florentine Republic and intensified pressure against people who were uh, fans of Savonarola. Hmm. But his Savonarola's ideas did find reception elsewhere. In Germany and Switzerland, the early Protestant reformers, here we go, most notably uh -oh. Martin Luther himself, read some of Savonarola's writings and praised him as a martyr and forerunner of the Reformation. Alrighty then. If you, mm. eh, endorsed so yeah, by so, Martin Luther. <laughs> Savonarola left many admirers throughout Europe, in particular among religiously pious humanist scholars who valued his deep spiritual convictions. Uh, Erasmus, 
who refused to become a Protestant when sort of all his friends were becoming Protestant, said that he remained Catholic due to reading Savonarola. At the same time, as said, he is considered by Protestants to be a forerunner of the Reformation because of his criticisms of the papacy. It's not really fair, however, because they were criticisms of the Pope, Alexander, not of the papacy itself. Uh, so I think it's a, sort of a misrepresentation. Yeah, I was literally about to say that. That's that just that just reads wrong. <laughs> yeah. So when you when especially when you have someone like Erasmus deciding not to become a Protestant because of reading Savonarola, that seems to weigh heavily against it. Yeah. So, in the 19th century, Italian nationalists found inspiration in Savonarola's political movement and somewhat anachronistically tried to make him a sort of role model for the movement for national unification and by emphasizing his political activism over his moralist crusade, they made Savonarola a voice for radical political change. Okay. In the Italian People's Party, founded in 1919, Savonarola was revered as a champion of social justice, where he was held up as a model of, and uh, he was held up as a model of sort of reformed Catholicism by leaders of the Italian Christian Democratic Party. So even when you literally have nothing, what you're doing is has nothing to do with what Savonarola did. His his image is still very, very powerful for centuries. Um, yeah, and all kinds of different movements keep using different aspects of his his career. You might say. Yeah, um, to yeah. support various different things, and that's not unheard of. It's sort of like uh, Che Guevara to just make it as controversial as possible. Tons of people hold that dude up for like little bits of things he did, and they just leave out the whole for the part, which is strange to see. But I, yeah. I guess that's my... in not comparing him to <laughs> not comparing yeah. him to Che. So in 1924, a Catholic theologian and church historian in Germany, Joseph Schnitzer, uh did the first real big modern comprehensive study of Savonarola's life and times in which he, uh, the conclusion he came to is he presented Savonarola as the last best hope of the Catholic church before the catastrophe of the Protestant reformation. Um, that, you know, if Savonarola had sort of not been killed and had succeeded in sort of changing the society in the church as he was trying to do that, the reformation probably wouldn't have happened was his conclusion. Um, and this is still an open discussion even today within the Catholic Church, uh, with many advocates and opponents still battling about the legacy of Savonarola. Hmm. Well, that's not surprising at all, because he was sort of a touchpoint for... Well, it, he was right about a lot. I mean, that's for sure, but to see... Wow, how quickly things just shifted in Florence around him. I don't know if it's... I, it's hard for me, you know, just having been reminded of some of this and also having learned a lot. It's hard for me to really come down on what, like, what side. Was he right? Was he wrong? I really don't know. What's your take? Well, I mean, as I said, I've always been a huge fan of Savonarola because I hate the Medici um, and Alexander the right. VI. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm usually a big fan of, you know, populist movements against the elites. Uh, so sure. <laughs> I definitely, there are definitely a lot to admire. Um, it's a little, a little, uh, at least you can admit, admit a little, little bias in there. But, hey, I don't blame you. I mean, I get it. That's the thing about a person like Savonarola. It's like, uh, and it was the same with Watt Tyler. It's like, uh, not to say that they're the same at all, but like, there's still these sort of touch point figures where it's like, yeah, they're kind of right, you know, but like Watt Tyler took it too far when he was, you know, being openly just disrespectful and churlish, you might say, toward the people who were listening to him, at least. Um, you know, Watt Tyler wasn't like a good 
great person, but it appears that he was an inevitable person. And I think that's the case here. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's okay to like people, even if you don't agree with everything that they're doing or saying. It's, it's okay to admire somebody who's a man of the times, you might say. Um, without, you know, advocating for everything that they said, because... And also, like, you can also avoid, like, the, the perversions of, like, saying, Oh, he's the, he's a, he was a Protestant and he didn't know it, and, like, all that crazy stuff, so. You know. Yeah, yeah. I can see why you, 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 uh, hold this, this character in high regard. And he looks like a crow, so. And he looks like a crow. It's too bad he got burned up real bad, but, you know. Hey, at least the Assassin's Creed guy was there to put him out of his misery, you know. We can at least say thanks to that. Yep. 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 Any any uh, closing comments or thoughts? Things you'd like to say about this man? I I, I think I've I think I've about said it all. Um, but yeah, no, I've been wanting to do this one for a long time, so I hope uh, yeah, hope it was uh, hope it was interesting and you know kept your attention, which I know is hard. You do tend to wander. No, you did a good job. Um, it, it's fact you can tell I'm paying attention if there's lots of digressions. <laughs> <laughs> it means my mind is active and teeming like the great Odysseus. That, that's an, obviously a joke. <laughs> you know that's a joke, right? <laughs> I, th I think I picked up on it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, I think we ought to head up to the surface. What do you say? Let's do it. All right. So, Aaron, what is the most interesting but completely pointless fact you've learned recently? Uh, okay, so in all of our, our... Well, while you were on vacation, I did a lot of reading. And I didn't realize that Greenland had a queen. And also that she's, like, really addicted to cigarettes and everyone loves that about her. <laughs> well... It's just the Queen of Denmark. Right, uh, I know. But yeah. it was it was okay. interesting. I, was, I want to make sure that, because I was like, I thought, I thought Greenland was still owned by Denmark. Yeah, but, yeah, you know. I, okay, so I, here's the thing. I was reading about Greenland, and I think I want to do a whole episode on just Greenland. We talk about Greenland. We talk about Greenland. Um, I didn't yeah. know about the cigarettes, though. Um, yeah, it's like, she's got, like, a uh, some kind of a nickname, like the Smoky Queen. I can't remember. I read it weeks ago. <laughs> I read it weeks ago, um, but uh, yeah, no, it, I was looking into Greenland, and there is so much to be said about that place. It is, it's a fascinating land of wonder, but that may be, that may materialize in, in uh, the, uh, <laughs> the eventual William Tell episode I've been, you know, working over for, uh, the, for a year The now. legendary William It'll Tell happen. Episode. I'm telling you it's going to happen, but it's going to oh. take a lot more development. It's, uh, it's one of those things where... Like, there's so much going on with that that it's, it's, it literally, like, the first time I tried it, I thought I was going crazy, and it didn't turn out so well. So, anyway, what about you? What if, what's the most interesting but completely pointless fact you've learned recently? Well, I learned that uh, French Guiana in South America is actually legally, literally a part of France. It's not sort of one of those vague, like, Commonwealth-type associations. Like, it's legally is considered part of France um, and is counted as part of France. And so the result of that is that Guyana is in the European Union, but Turkey isn't, despite all their efforts, which just makes me laugh. Um, 
that's yeah, it's funny that like technically it's it's not considered a uh you know a sort of associated or you know territory or anything like that it's literally counted as part of france is just ah oh, yes one of the regions of france we have toulouse bordeaux guiana <laughs> <laughs> that's funny that see that's that's the kind of thing that i find uh absolutely fascinating like um you know, Australia being a fake country or Canada not actually being a real thing and like all those like little legal things where it's like that's another thing. It's like there's there's a lot of legal um, nuance and oddities in world um, law, you might say, but the politics of it almost doesn't take any of that into account. So it's it's interesting to see people learning legal facts that don't actually matter. <laughs> yeah, but Anyway, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably a Medici or an Assassin's Creed man. So consider funding the show by becoming a royal patron on patreon.com. And if Patreon is not your thing, you can always drop us a little one-time donation into Venmo. That's at WTADP. Uh, Put some bread in our jar. We always appreciate it. Um, And, yep, again, thank you, patrons. Thank you, uh, new patrons especially. Or not, not especially, but it's good to have you guys around. It's fun to have more patrons. Um... And uh, we're just glad you guys support the show, so thanks so much for that, uh, even in our our absence while we go on pilgrimages to the uh, David Koresh uh, Foundation or whatever. Um, (laughs) Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the kingdom of God play you out. It's just going to be the Assassin's Creed theme. (laughs) I had a feeling. Thank you.